0: This is World Beyond War, a new podcast.
1: Welcome to the sixth episode of World Beyond War's new podcast series. We recently spoke about art and activism, and today we're talking with two notable novelists about another creative political crossover, fiction and the awareness of war. Anti-war activists often struggle to find the words to express the urgency of the problem of war and the necessity for peace. Can the literary writer's craft help? We have two special guests to talk with us about this today. Our first guest is Roxanna Robinson, author of Dawson's Fall, which creates a fictional world out of turbulent post-Civil War Charleston, South Carolina the heart of the now-broken Confederacy, where Roxanna's own ancestor was a well-known newspaper man who struggled deeply with the moral questions of his time. Roxanna's other novels deal with tough topics, such as heroin addiction, the difficulties of blended families, and in the acclaimed novel Sparta, the PTSD that haunts a former U.S. Marine returning from Iraq. Our second guest is Don Tripp, whose most recent novel, Georgia, imagines the inner life and relationships of American modern artist, Georgia O'Keeffe, whose confident and bold public demeanor, it turns out, was built upon a tough foundation of defiance and insistence upon self-definition. Dawn's other works of fiction include the novels, Moontide, The Season of Open Water, Game of Secrets, and a short story, Mojave, published online in Roxanne Gay's Literary Journal. This is Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm joined on this podcast by my co-host, Greta Zaro.
0: Welcome.
1: I'm going to ask each of you, Don and Roxana, the same question. What does anti-war activism mean to you? And I'll start with Roxana.
2: Okay, that's a, that's a complicated question, isn't it?
1: It sure is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I grew up in a family where um, my fa- my, both my parents converted to Quakerism, and became, my father was a conscientious objector, And so I grew up in a, in a household that had already taken a very strong position about war and about social activism. So as a teenager, I resisted that very strongly. I didn't mm-hmm. want to go on any um, anti-war marches, protests. That was all the stuff that my parents did. So I didn't, um, I didn't participate in, in any of the anti anti-Vietnam War. Um, activity, but I felt this undercurrent um, always of the the idea that it was um, a moral responsibility of every citizen to take a position on public matters, and war was a big was a big issue. Um, and since two thousand and sixteen, I've become much more politically active and um, doing active campaigning, calling. Congress people going door to door, marching, all the things that are traditional means of of allowing people to um, declare themselves. Uh, But it's also writing. And as a writer, um, I think that my responsibility is to speak about the things that are most important to me. And that's what I've done throughout my writing career. And most recently, with, with Sparta, I wrote about the war in Iraq, and with Dawson's Fall, I found myself writing about slavery and its, um, its legacies, which are racism and violence. So that's yeah. <laughs> that's, my act, that's the history of my activism.
1: Well, I'm, I'm really eager to dive into some of the things you just said, but before I do, I'd like to ask the same question to Dawn.
2: It
3: is. Um, I agree with Roxana that it's it's a complicated question, um, and I I am a convinced Quaker. So I came to Quakerism twenty years ago, and so I wasn't I wasn't born into a Quaker family. Um, mm. I was born into a Congregational on one, my dad's side and Episcopal on my mom's side. Um, I grew up in Newton and Cambridge, so I grew up in a very very liberal. Um, culture, mm-hmm. where there were just uh, assumptions that I had about the the, the way individuals um, would, in my experience, limited experience, interact with the world and with politics. And I had, from the time I was young, my father was in the navy, and um, and not didn't serve actively. But I I had from the time I was young, not because of him, not because of my parents, perhaps in part because of how I grew up in that, you know, Newton, Cambridge uh, space, I had a very visceral um, kind of inner anti-war sense. So when I came to Quakerism later, um, when I had just, you know, just met my husband, it was something that felt very natural to me and aligned with my uh, personal, you know, and very independent belief system. Um, I've thought a lot about this. What does it mean to be political? And what does it mean? What does anti-war activism mean? Particularly since I've had um, boys who I've raised, but we've raised mm-hmm. both our boys um, to be Quaker. They go to a friend's school about 45 minutes away from where we live. and And that's important to me. It's important to me that not just um, on Sundays that they have this, this conversation about what does it mean to make active peace in the world, um, both on a, on a larger political global kind of arena, but also what does it mean in your individual day-to-day life, in your individual day-to-day choices, your individual day-to-day interactions. And I thought a lot about that and I've raised them you know, in conversation with that And my older son is a conscientious, you know, does, you know, sort of has determined to be a conscientious objector. We've had that minuted um, in our meeting. And that's something that that he feels strongly about. He's also extremely politically active. um, And that's something that matters deeply, deeply to him. And I feel it's in large part because of what we've tried to, you know, instill in them as a family. I've struggled in the last two years because my, my husband was diagnosed with a a rare lymphoma in 2016 and um and it has really impacted my ability to be um out in the world Mm -hmm. um and that has been something that's kind of um shaped what I can do out in the world so I've thought a lot about how can my writing, what can I do as a writer, what do I what am I already doing as a writer to um to to impact individual an individual to think differently about about the world in which we live because ultimately I believe that um, as a writer I'm not necessarily working with political issues but every relationship that I'm writing about in my fiction has some political component if that makes sense
1: Mm -hmm. one of the things you just said Dawn that you're you're always considering how to balance between your convictions and your these important beliefs and your craft as a writer or your art as a writer actually I'd like to direct this in the same order first to Roxana, how do you approach the question of um, the divide between fiction and and real world messaging when you are writing do you engage your political instincts or do you actually step aside from them and compartmentalized to some degree.
2: Well, the, the reason that I write fiction or or nonfiction actually is because um, there's something that becomes increasingly important and urgent to me to to declare to 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 put out into the world so there's no division because um for example with sparta i wrote that book because of a new york times article that i read and it was sort of in the beginning of the war and um this later became well known but this was the first time i had seen the fact that we were sending men out in unarmored vehicles um to To go out on patrol basically until they were hit with an IUD and suffered some kind of damage, and then the the medical officers there had been told not to diagnose brain injury because it was too expensive to treat and because it removed people from the field and they couldn't afford to give up people from the field. And I was so appalled by this, this sort of devil's triangle of information. I had not been. For the war, I had not voted for George Bush either time, but but I, you know, that's how it is. As a citizen, you don't always get the candidate that you hoped for. I still thought that if we had to go to war, we would have the best equipment possible, the best training, and we would support the troops as best they could possibly be supported. And none of those things were true. So I wrote out of a sense of anguish really to think of those young men. And I learned as I wrote the book that many of them were idealistic so that when my generation was idealistic, they joined the Peace Corps. But for this generation, they joined the Marine Corps. It was really interesting to me. They wanted to make the world a better place. They didn't think they could do that from home. And they didn't want to go to work on Wall Street. They wanted to do something that challenged them in every way. And the Marine Corps gave them a set of ideals. So these were the young men that were being sent out into the darkness in unarmored vehicles um, to be blown up. And I I couldn't stand that. And so I just started out with that vision in my mind. There was no sense of, of division that this is a fiction writer and this is the political activist. Um, I had to learn a whole world in order to write that book. I had to um, understand what it meant to become a Marine. I had to talk to many Marines. I would have gone to Iraq, except that we were at war with them. It was, mm-hmm. it was the State Department didn't want you to go. But I had to uh, learn what it was like to be the, that young man. And that was my task, to, to bring that story to any reader who was interested and to let the reader decide how he or she felt about the war given these these facts
1: well one thing i really love about your novel sparta which is the one you're describing is that your character while he is a gung-ho marine or he joined the the marines as a gung-ho you know patriot um he goes to war because because he's fascinated by the the history of warfare isn't that right and and actually i think that's what you refer to in the title sparta is he's obsessed with ancient Greece and he actually goes to war as a cultural um, experiment and comes back really destroyed. That's yeah. how I would describe your novel, which to me is a bit, I think you were, you were going beyond the cliche of somebody who goes to war as sort of cannon fodder.
2: Yeah, so, and, and yeah. I've had many people who were in, his, in that category, and one of the um, interviews I did when I came back was with a, a, the wife of a, of a member of the military. And we had. she was going to interview me for some for a, a podcast or something she did. And she said, what are the things that most surprised you when you did the research? And I said, I was most surprised to find that so many of these men in the military went in for reasons of idealism. And she yeah. said, why is that a surprise? And I yeah. said. Yeah. The civilians don't know that she was so angry and so upset that we didn't know it that she wouldn't do the interview with me. Hmm. Wow. There was a, a huge pool of very responsible, dedicated um, participants in the military that civilians aren't aren't aware of. So Conrad was was representative of that group.
1: Yeah, and um, likewise with with your most recent novel, Dawn. Georgia, which is about Georgia O'Keeffe. And I should actually mention just a sort of coincidence here that Roxanna has also written about Georgia O'Keeffe. To me, I loved your novel, Georgia. And when I began that, I thought it was going to be mostly a meditation upon being an artist. But I also felt in that book, while there is no politics at all, I don't think there the the characters in this book don't sit around discussing the politics of the 1920s certainly to me felt like you were on some sort of, um, at least cultural mission with this book in describing how Georgia O'Keeffe had to fight against the the limitations of her time and what it meant to be a woman artist in, in America. So yeah, with that, she, yeah.
3: She actually objected to the term woman artist. Like she really, uh, you know, she was very ferocious about, um, mm. you know, I, she wanted to be considered an artist. And so I would just um, differ slightly um, with your assessment because I believe that Georgia is a political book, um, you know, and it's about gender politics. And that is something that matters deeply to me. I mean, I, you know, majored in literature and feminist theory. And that was what I, you know, focused in in college. That's what I've been focused on. And when I I talked before about how you know each of my novels is dealing with some sort of each relationship in my novel is dealing with some sort of political um relationship in georgia it's really focused around gender and um and also to a certain extent around um around class not class you know stratification per se but just sort of the money um the way money and uh the way money factored into male female relationships um then, um, the way it's still um, is a political issue in male and female uh, relationships now is kind of um, brought to the focus by the uh, women's uh, national soccer team. But in, in, I just want to kind of just back up a bit to my third novel, which I know you haven't read yet. Um, that's actually the most to me when I was thinking about what does it mean to be political? Um, when I first moved, I, I came as a summer person to the town where I live, Westport, Mass, and I've always loved it as a summer person. I really believe that when you come to a place as a summer person, you can, um, experience it in that, uh, you know, that falling in love way that sometimes mm-hmm. when you live in a place day in and day out, you, you see the underside of it. You see the kind of, you know, some of the, you know, the more, um, the more divisive tensions that define the town. So in Westport, it's a, it's a physically exquisite town. You know, it's a, it's a fishing, a traditionally fishing farming town. You know, we live on the beach and it's, you know, it's an absolutely beautiful town. Um, there are a lot of class tensions in this town. Um, you know, people like me who grew up in, you know, privileged white, um, grew up in Newton, Cambridge, you know, come down and, um, you know, come to Westport for the summer. And now, you know, a, a lot of people like me have moved into Westport full-time, up, you know, dri- driven up property values so that families who've lived in genera- you know, for generations in Westport, like my husband's family, can't afford to live in the town where their families have lived for, you know, 13 to 15 generations. So my first three novels are actually set in the town where I live. And the third novel was derived primarily from um, interviews that I did for my first two novels. Um, I was interviewing older people who, whose families had um, not who had personal experience, but whose families had remembered the 1938 hurricane or um, the rum running days in Westport. But in the course of those interviews for my first two books, I began to get to know them. I'd spend, you know, I'd go with my list of 20 questions and I'd spend two to three hours in these people's homes. And they had very different experiences of, um, of Westport. And a very different understanding of um, of our world, and there was um, there was a really pronounced uh, th- there were things that I encountered that I really struggled with. Um, most of them um, probably would have voted for Trump, hmm. and, uh, and again, grew up Cambridge, you know, went to Harvard. Like you know, it's like I didn't I didn't have a template for that, and so that experience of of those interviews, those conversations, and coming to understand and coming to listen to people whose whose views were so markedly, profoundly different from mine was something that really transformed the way that I thought um, that I think about the world where we live. And it transformed then when Trump was elected, you know, again 2016, so five years after Game of Secrets was published, I realized that a lot of the dynamics that I had noticed and that I had written about are, were currents that then came to the forefront in that election and in the, you know, the three years of, you know, two and a half um, interminable years of, of increasing division and, and an almost tribal division uh, since. You know, I was born in 1968. So at that time, there was so many tensions that were erupting in our culture, but it's not like those have gone away. It's like they've just gone underground and sort of like fire kind of traveled underground. And now we have an administration that uses those divisions in order to build power, you know, that kind of capitalizes and preys on that division and that lack of understanding between people of different backgrounds in our country in order to amass a certain power.
0: I just wanted to follow up with um, Roxana and ask if you had any veterans coming and affirming your work and saying that they shared similar experiences. Did you get any positive feedback like that?
2: I got enormous positive feedback. Um, I got letters, letter after letter from people saying, thank you for writing this. This is my story. I got letters from people from who've been in Vietnam. Um, I think that, that what I was writing about, which they found useful was the fact that there was such a divide between the military and civilians so that when they came home having risked their lives having even if even if during as in vietnam during vietnam most people were not volunteers they were they were drafted but um even so you went out and you went into the jungle or into the desert and you risked your life for the country and you came home in the country after Vietnam, you felt the country despised you. After Iraq, you felt the the country just doesn't see you. doesn't doesn't see what you've done. doesn't see that you, you've you've done the 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 most you could possibly do as a person. And the civilian world ignores that and and looks right through you. So I had many many veterans who who wrote and and said, yes, this is right. Thank you. Um, to be fair. Uh, it's not that I was such a genius. I had many okay. veterans who helped me um, when I was doing research, and I asked a huge favor of two mar- Marines who were my most, um, my most helpful, uh, and, one, and they were both writers, and afterwards they both wrote their own books, but they both read the entire manuscript, checking for civilian errors, which, of which hmm. there were a number, and one was Phil Cly and the other was Elliot Ackerman, both of whom have written their own um, acclaimed books. So I, I got a lot of support.
1: I'm interested that both, both of you seem very aware of the way that things have changed in this country in the past couple of years, since 2016. And um, Dawn, I especially register that you've been dealing with you know personal family crisis of illness at the same time. I'd like to know, um, and I, I, I think I'd like to start with Don here. How would you how would you describe the situation that the country is in, our country, and that the world is in right now, and and also in general? And you know, I'm really asking for a for a 10,000 foot view here. Where are we in history? What are we doing? How do you how do you digest what is going on? In this turbulent world right now
3: as I mentioned, um, I feel like our our America right now is divided. you know we have a, a racist, reckless administration that really preys on that division, um, but i don 't think that what we're, what we 're wrestling with in terms of the issues themselves are new, um, and I think we're I think what Trump is doing with them is new, if that makes sense. The kind of the the conflagratory way that he stirs that division, I think that that is new. Um, I think that the silence, you know, the, you know, Republican silence on on what he's doing is not new. I think issues around gender are not new. Um, I think the fact that we're we're having that conversation. We're able to talk about them in ways we weren't able to maybe talk about them, or we didn't talk about them as much um, in the decades between the '60s and the um, and now. Is I don't know that it's new. It's more just that this has all gone underground, and and it's now coming um, back to the surface. I, I feel like as a as a culture, we have never um, we've never been able to you know, figure out our relationship to race. We've never been able to figure out our relationship to immigration. I do feel that the light that's being shown, that's being shown on America right now, it's not new to the rest of the world, but I feel like it's new to us, if
2: that makes mm-hmm. sense.
3: Like we're seeing things that maybe we had the luxury not to see for a long time. And, and I feel like that's really critical. But then what's also critical is what do you do with that? I talked to my boys about that. I wrote a piece recently that's coming out in um, the Harvard Review about uh, Ann Carson's um, retelling of the Antigone, which is called Antigonic, and, mm. and you know, linking it with um, E. Jean Carroll's, like, allegations against, uh, against Trump um, in, a, in an oblique way, but, you know, linking it and, and Antigone's active resistance. But I still feel like what we are... What we're working with is, um, are, are issues that have been around for a long, long time. And so when I talk to my kids about it and, um, and I talk to them about, about our, our social and political responsibility, part of what I talk to them about is how the world, world has changed, how the world appears to have changed and how it resists change and why.
2: Roxanne, any thoughts on that? so i agree with dawn but i have some other i have another way of looking at it um i do think that our country has a has a unique and terrifying relationship to the question of race we started slavery in this country around 1600 and we did and so for 250 years we um supported a diabolical institution that was a crime against humanity. We have never gotten beyond that. The legacies of that, slavery is based on violence. There's no way you can persuade someone to be a slave. It depends completely on physical violence. And physical violence was what the underpinning of our society in the South for 250 years. The South depended on guns, on whips, on manacles, on all the Physical manifestations of torture. In 1878, there was a report done, and New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Vermont each reported one murder. South Carolina reported 128. Hmm. It was simply a different culture, and it was based on violence, and it was based on racism. So after the Emancipation Act, um, slavery was illegal, but but the people in the South couldn't tolerate the fact that these people who had been their free laborers now had to be paid and now had to have, be allowed to vote. And that feeling of resentment has has never vanished from this country. It doesn't exist to this level. It doesn't exist in Europe or in England. We're the only country that has this terrible history. And this, the problems of race are still deeply manifest in this country. So I agree with Dawn that this administration is um, stirring up this divisiveness. Um, and it's appealing to the lowest the lowest of our impulses. And we've had a history ever since the founders, ever since the Constitution was written, we've had a history of people appealing to our noblest instincts. That's the way the early language of this country was all written in terms of honesty and honor and integrity and, and um, creating a democracy that would be the best for all people. So, and that's something that even though we've, of course, we've had corruption, we've had lies and, and um, deception in our government, we have still, we have still spoken about those ideals and striven for them until now. And this administration is abandoning all ideas of appealing to our, our noblest instincts. And they are saying, um, let's appeal to your worst instincts. And of course, everyone has bad instincts. That's not a surprise, but the government should not be appealing to them. And that's what's happening now, and it's why it's so difficult to deal with. We've never had a government that did this before.
0: One of the things that we focus on at World Beyond War is sort of the intersection between war and many other issues, between war and gender, between war and climate change between war and racism and the way that war promotes bigotry and vice versa, racism leads to war as well. Um, so I'm wondering if in your work, and Dawn, perhaps in your interviews, if you kind of saw any of those cross connections being made with war and militarism.
3: Yes, um, because war is founded on a we versus they mentality, right? As are conflicts around race, as are conflicts around gender as are conflicts around economic inequality. There's this sense of of otherness, you know, the other, um, that other person who's distanced from us, who we don't understand, who is not like us. So it's again, that sense of the we, they, it's like that tribal sense of of there's a group over there that is not intelligible to us, that is not part of us. And that's what allows war. That's what allows, you know, gender and, and racial inequity is that sense of disconnect, emotional disconnect, from someone else's experience who is not like us. Does that make sense? I don't know if that's it's fully an answer to your question, but to me, those, those things are not separate um, just because of what they're, you know, the foundation, what they're all founded on.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That sense of not being able to connect, you know, to bridge divides between, between one person and, and another person or one group and another group.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean m- my way of of hearing th- this exchange is also it, you know it's interesting to me that earlier in this conversation, Don, I had said your book Georgia was not political, and you pointed out that gender is political um Roxana, you're talking about the legacy of slavery and how that affects us today, so really it's all intersectionality i mean race gender war and so You know, one interesting thing about this conversation is Greta and I meet constantly. We're both very active parts of this organization, World Beyond War. When we are very enmeshed in this cause and then talk to two people who are novelists and very much enmeshed in the the sort of literary, artistic, creative side, I'm really interested in exploring what these two things, how these two things can help each other. And you know, one thing that occurs to me is we all—all all four of us—try to use words to change people's minds. Now, um, Roxanne and Don, I think you you use words to touch people emotionally. I think Greta and I use words to try to move people's decisions. But really, in a way, it's sort of. The same isn't it are there words that you think can meet the challenge that that we the, that the world is facing right now? How do we as writers think creatively to find the words that can make a difference right now, and is this part of your mission as a writer
2: Don I, I liked what you said about otherness and war. I think that's exactly right um, I think as writers we're always trying to change minds I, I think that I feel kind of hampered at the moment because I think that the whole tribe, as, as Don describes it, of people who support this administration are, are not going to read my words. They're not reading me and they're not reading Don and they're not reading the New York Times. Um, they're drawing their information from different sources. So I can write as boldly and as powerfully as I want. And I it may not change anyone's mind who doesn't already agree with me. So that makes me feel frustrated in some ways. Um, I don't know what, whether that means we have to find different ways of expressing this feeling that we have. Um, in any case, it, it's not stopping me from writing. I'm still writing, and I'm still writing about the things that I find most serious and most troubling. Um, and as we've said, that war, oh, it was, I was going back to something Greta said. Um, Certainly in the military, which is what I did a lot of research in for Sparta, um, there are issues of gender, uh, huge issues of gender. Women are treated abysmally um, Mm -hmm. on many, many levels in the military. They're not treated as equals, although they train and they do everything that that men can do. Um, And the question of the environment is an interesting one. I mean, war is one of the most destructive, environmentally destructive activities we've ever produced. Um, and yet the Pentagon is trying to get the administration to recognize that we must be more environmentally um, uh, responsible, that climate change is, is making certain areas of the world, the Middle East, more and more unstable. They want, for example, to use solar panels in the Middle East so that they are, they are not so dependent on uh, dangerous convoys carrying fuel across the desert, subject to um, attack. Um, so the Pentagon is aware of this, and this administration refuses to acknowledge what the the gris at the Pentagon are trying to say. So war is um, active on both ends of the environmental scale. It's both very destructive, but also very aware. They have um, great um, research and great minds at work on it, uh, but we're we're not doing a good job uh, of making green wars. <laughs> Um i mean we shouldn 't be making any wars, but uh, to the extent that we are, it would be better if they were not so devastatingly environmentally damaging
1: it 's quite scary to think that we are we are witnessing the Pentagon trying to give the the federal government good advice to be more environmentally conscious, and that in this case, the Pentagon is actually I mean, I'm not. I'm not used to siding with the Pentagon. Um, Wow!
2: (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, they're heroes. (laughs) Whew!
3: Yeah. (laughs) Well, we think about it. You know, when a book is published, thousands of copies are printed and distributed, and you know, put in the hands of reader. But at the end of the day, it's that it's that reader's relationship with your words. You know, words on the page. One reader's solitary relationship with words on a page that really is what you know. Reading is revelatory. And I, I agree absolutely with Roxana that what I struggle with is, is I'm keenly aware that um, many people who share very different points of view than I do are not necessarily going to be the people who read my work. But I, I come back always, and I, I, I pulled it up because I, I just wanted to quote it correctly. I pulled it up on my phone. There was a moment when I was in college where um, I really thought I understood feminism and I was, you know, I was. 20 right so i mean what do you understand when you're 20 but i really felt like i understood it and then i read i loved audrey lord she was one of the um writers that i loved and i i read this um, quote from her some problems we share as women some we do not you fear your children will grow up to join the patriarchy and testify against you we fear our children will be dragged from a car and shot down in the street and you will turn your backs on the reasons they are dying And I, I just read that because that was the moment when I read that, that was the moment when I realized how much I don't understand, Mm. how much I don't understand about a black woman's experience. I have one of my my closest friends is Jamaican. Her sons are Jamaican American. They've grown up to our boys have grown up together. Um, They've been in the same school together. They're close to the same age and we have talked over the last you know, 10 years that we've um, both served on the board of this school together, how our experiences are so markedly different strictly because I am white and she is black. And, and I really feel though that I have to come back to that faith that what I put on the page, if, I'm, if I believe, if I have let my own mind, if I have let my own heart be thrown over you know, whether it's by the interviews I gave or the, the realizations, the understandings that I came to about how the intimate political, re, you know, the intimate relationship between Georgia and Stieglitz got played out in very political ways, political and gendered ways um, in a public sphere. Um, I Once I have that revelation as I'm creating a book, the only thing I can do is hope that as it gets sent out to the world that there is someone who will read it and have that same sense of having their own kind of heart turned Mm -hmm. over or their mind changed in some small incremental way. You know, it's the same way, you know, we kind of, you know, tend our children like a garden, right. To kind Mm -hmm. of grow up and sort of create that ripple effect out in the broader world. But it's, to me, it's not just about, um, broad sweeping change. It's like, what are you doing in the day-to-day? What are you doing in those intentional relationships with people who see things very differently, who love their kids as much as you love yours? Um, How are you allowing yourself to be open to how they see the world, even if it's so markedly different? And I feel like if I can hold that openness, I can also hold the expectation or the hope that someone else will read my work who has a different point of view and will allow themselves to be changed.
1: Just as you were 20 years old and you read this writer who had no idea that at that moment you were reading that writer, somebody who's 20 years old will be picking up your book and you may never know for another, you know, maybe they'll mention it in an interview 25 years later. And um, so that's a nice feeling. I I want to ask one of the most central questions that we as anti-war activists deal with, which is, is is progress in the problem of war possible? And, you know, I I want to preface it by saying that I would not be an anti-war activist if I didn't think there was hope. So I refuse to accept hopelessness as an answer, but that, that sort of boxes both of you in because maybe you were about to give me a very hopeless answer. But where is hope? Where is the hope? What what can we be hoping for? Because we can't give up. So, what can we hope for?
2: Um, I think I think we we can never give up. Uh, voicing the things that we think are most important. We have been become sort of inured over the last 13 years to this a state of war, which is very unusual for this country. We've never fought such a long war before. People have gotten used to seeing military uniforms and airports and thank you for your service has become a, 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 a sort of trope. Um, but it's not normal for a country to be like this. And the more we speak out for peace, the more we speak out for against the idea of the other, um, the, the, the more we will be able to change as Don said, says the people closest to us, the people around us. And it's really important just to hear someone speaking words, just to hear someone uh, say, well, that's not what I believe, or um, I'd rather have paper than plastic. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to walk instead of taking the car. There are all sorts of small things that you that that influence you if you hear someone say them or you see someone do them in your daily life. Um, wearing orange for every town uh, on the, that gun control day, it, it, it allows people to remember that there is a whole network. There's a whole world of people who oppose war who oppose violence and integrate that feeling into our lives. You can do it as a writer, which I absolutely do, and you can do it um, by saying something, by, by smiling at someone who's doing it, by giving a thumbs up when you see somebody holding a sign, um, by connecting to the people who are working against this military Presence that has infiltrated our country.
3: I agree. And um, I, I've always felt, or I felt for quite some time, I won't say always, but um, that listening is a political act. Like listening is active. Um, in the same way, we sometimes think of peace as static. Um, there was uh, some work I did with um, Mary Lord, who's a Quaker activist, anti war activist, and she talked about, um, and this is something that I've since come to um, you know, integrate into my own uh, way of thinking and seeing the world, that, that peace is something that we are actively working at, again, daily. You know, peace isn't something that we're going to arrive at. Peace is something that we kind of need to work at constantly. And even as we're kind of making peace, you know, in our, in our world or with, or with someone else, Part of it is staying open and listening and then continuing to to work, past, to work past difference in that sense of the other, because I do feel that as long as our, as our world is structured in this more tribal um, way and as long as we don 't acknowledge that degree of tribalism that that kind of underpins you know, our structures out in the world including including more. Um, But but also, you know, our structures kind of everywhere (laughs) that as long as we're not acknowledging that it's going to be really hard to move beyond it, if that makes sense. As long as we are not able to see our own blind spots. Um, And of course, it's really hard to see your own blind spots. But part of it is just being open and seeking out someone who sees things really differently. Um, I feel like I'm coming back to that same that same refrain, but. But I feel like as long as we are, we function in this more, in this more tribal way, in this way of we and they and, and self and other, um, we're not allowing for that, um, that shared humanity to, to, to build momentum.
0: What you both are getting at is what we would call um, cultivating a culture of peace, which is one of the three strategies that World Beyond War lays out in our book.
1: Great point. One thing that... I- I actually didn't focus on when we were arranging this, is that both of you, Roxanne and Don, have a Quaker background. That's actually a, a facet of the culture of peace that I know nothing about. I'd like to know from both of you, what is that about? I'd love to hear what it, what it means to you as a writer and as a political person.
2: Um, probably Don has more, a more active connection to it now than I do. But I grew up um, in Bucks County where my father was the head of a Quaker school. We went to meeting on Sundays for, for meeting. And we went to meeting on Mondays for the school. So I grew up in a, in a very, um, deeply permeated culture of Quakerism. Um, one of the interesting things about Quakerism itself is that it's incredibly activist. So, um, although it's sort of um, lumped in with other Protestant groups, um, Quakers are the ones that send uh, food ships to places where there are droughts or or, or storms. Quakers um, go marching. Quakers deliver letter, handwritten letters to Susan Collins. Mm. And they are. They have regular meetings for peace and social justice. Um, They address the big issues. They never hide behind a curtain saying, well, that's something, we're we're not going to be political here. Quakers are always political. They always know who's voting on the side of liberalism, and they support those people. They make phone calls. they there was i I belong to a meeting in maine on mount desert island and they are wonderful activist group and uh two years ago they were in the fourth of july parade they had a float with banners and um uh, wonderful costumes so they um they stand in silence on the town green with signs on Saturdays saying stop the war in Iraq. They did that for years. So Quakers are people who take their responsibilities very seriously. And to belong to a Quaker meeting gives you access to a wonderful sense of community and a sense of vigorous um, intellectual and activist um, capability. It, it, it's a great organization you, you should you should go to a quick meeting and see what it 's like it 's also it 's completely democratic i 'm sure you know this there are no ministers so the way that meetings are are um, held is everyone walks into a room sits down and waits in silence for um, a moment in which they feel moved to speak about something. So it's open to anyone and you can find whatever it is that moves you in any way you choose. You come to know each other in that way. And as I say, no, you never feel that anyone is censoring you or guiding your ideas. It's a very, very much a, a communal path that you take and a sense of shared responsibility, shared understanding and shared obligations. And that's a really great, great description. I, I think the one thing that I
3: would add is... Um... It is a sect of Christianity and um, it, although Quaker meetings now and Quakers themselves, you know, really range, you know, there are Quakers that are God-centered, that are Christ-centered. I am not Christ-centered Quaker. Um, I I don't believe that Christ was the son of God. Um, I am mostly, most of the time a God-centered Quaker, but I sometimes even kind of question that. Um, But the one belief that joins all friends together is this belief? Because when you join a friend's meeting, um, it's a very active choice. I mean, you go through a clearness committee, and you know, you sit with it. It's not a, It's not like you just you know sign up one day. But you know, it's a, it's a, it's a multi-step process. It's something that you you deliberate with and um, and sit with, and it's um the uh when you join a Quaker meeting, you join the you're joining the religious society of Friends, which is the global um, organization that, that, that you know, joins all Friends meetings together, it's those that are programmed, those that are unprogrammed, those that are Christ-centered, those that are not. and um, But the one belief that underpins all, you know, that, that's true to all Quakers, um, no matter what kind of meeting they, uh, they belong to and no matter what kind of beliefs that, beliefs that they embrace, there's no doctrine. In Quakerism, that's important. There's no mm-hmm. doctrine and no dogma. Um, but the one belief that is core is um, the belief that there's that of God in each of us um, or there's that, that inner light that is within each of us, each of us, like everywhere. <laughs> and, and that's something that really guides me um, in my life as a writer, in my life as a mother, in my life as a human being in the world is there is that peace of God in every single person that I come into contact with and, um, and then the only other thing I would add is that, is that friends do, um, even though there's no doctrine and no dogma, friends do um, live their life according to Quaker testimonies, um, you know, are loosely organized around the acronym SPICES. It just helps you remember it. Um, simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, and stewardship. And so those um, beliefs really help guide the way you live your life
1: i've never heard of spices and I, that's amazing that will help me remember it don't, we don't love
3: it i taught i taught first day school i taught uh, quaker sunday school for 12 years and so we use that um i don't know that all friends embrace it because it um you know it makes things really easy um whereas the uh the testimonies are are you know meant to you know, be in, be in dialogue again with sort of those, that deeper core of that piece of God in you and that, that sense of the spirit and leadings.
1: Would, would you say, Dawn, that um, this religious affiliation has made you more conscious in, in all the political senses we're talking about, gender, you know, race, militarism. Was it sort of that the religion helped bring you to an awareness or was it that your awareness brought you to the religion?
3: I think it's both. I mean, I think they're constantly in dialogue with one another. I, I do feel that as, and this may be also just a function of getting older, you know, as, you know, I'm, I just hit 50 and, uh, and I'm really thinking about, the, you know, how explicit I want my future work to be politically. And when I say politically, again, I I sort of ask myself to define like, what do you mean politically? You know, do you mean that you're going to write about political issues or, or, but, but I do feel an increasing responsibility, particularly given the state of the world to really think about how my words, the impact that my words are having in the world and the impact of my time spent, the time I spend on a given project. Um, I have a book under contract right now. The book has changed over the last, you know, the, the shape of the book has changed over the last three years because of what's happening in the world, but it hasn't changed to the extent that I that I need it to change. Um, but I'm thinking a lot about how the kind of future trajectory of my career um, will interface with my faith as a Quaker and also with the state of the world as it is.
1: Wow, really looking forward to reading that next one. Thanks. Yeah. Roxana, what are you working on now?
2: I don't talk about what I'm writing.
1: Ah, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also know you're touring the country and hopefully the world with your latest novel.
2: Yeah. So. Lawson's Fall is um is something that I that I really wrote in order to to try just as Don was saying, to try to understand people with a mind um a mindset and a and a set of beliefs that were completely different from my own. And um my great-grandfather on my father's side was an Englishman who came to this country to fight for the Confederacy. And he fought for five years and became a very distinguished member of the of the Southern effort. He was a captain of the cavalry at the end of the war. And he married my great-grandmother, who was uh, a judge's daughter from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And the two of them spent the rest of their married lives in Charleston, South Carolina, which was You know, a hotbed. It was the first the first state to secede, and it was um, a state that was filled with white supremacists, all of whom he had fought with during the war. So he and Sarah were both representative of the Confederacy. But he became Frank Dawson became the editor and part owner of a newspaper called the the News and Courier. And writing for that, he became a very liberal, progressive voice voice of the New South. And Often he took stands. He believed in the rule of law. He was a very devout Catholic. He wouldn't carry weapons after the war. And he spoke out on behalf of the civil rights of the black freedmen, which put him at odds with his with his Confederate brothers in arms. So I wanted to understand somebody who very deeply felt um, the responsibility of integrity and honor, the rule of law, principles of civil rights and yet someone who could have fought for the Confederacy and um, mm-hmm. so I had to figure out who my ancestors were how how they could be people that we admired both of them wrote both of them were writers both of them wrote memoirs that were published um, so I could I could read a lot of their thoughts and and go very deeply into their backgrounds and to their beliefs and it led me to an understanding of what it would have meant to support the Confederacy and the institution of slavery and how that was possible in the South for 250 years. Um, and to understand that, although slavery was a monstrous institution, everyone who was complicit in it was not a monster. As Don said, we believe as Quakers, when we believe as as People of goodwill, that there is that of God, or that there is an inner light in every person. And before the Civil War, there were five and a half million white Southerners. They were not all monsters. There were people who thought of themselves as good Christians, charitable people, generous, kindly, and yet they were complicit in this system. And I needed to find out why. I needed to find out how that could be possible particularly because they were my ancestors, you feel a kind of moral responsibility for your ancestors. How could you do this? Because I can't disconnect myself from you. I can't put myself on the other side of the river here. We're part of the same chain. So how could I be raised by my father to believe in principle, to believe in civil rights and the rights of humans, and yet be a descendant of you? What were you thinking? So I came to understand how this could be possible, how we could be both as Americans, we could believe in that system, which now seems unconscionable, but to many, many people, millions of people, it seemed normal, and understand how people of goodwill could have folded themselves, and not folded themselves, had grown up in that system and accepted it as normal, and how distant that seems now, and yet I needed to understand it for myself. And as I wrote the book, it took me five years. I came to understand that it was not just my family I was writing about. I was writing about the history of this country and the legacy that we have inherited, the terrible legacy we've inherited of racism and violence.
1: Wow, well, um, I love it that both of you are converging on the same idea, which is that despite the monstrous things that we see that we all sometimes do, we, we know that human beings are not monsters and that we know that, as you said, Don. I think, I'm, I don't remember the exact phrase, but God is within us or, or I, actually I think that's a quote from Tolstoy, but <laughs> what, was it, what was the phrase that you, you
3: There's said? that, piece, that <laughs> piece of God in each of us, you know, with yeah. the inner light, there's that belief that the inner, there's an inner light in each of us. I struggle with that sometimes, <laughs> you know, when I, when I think about, um, when, I, when I'm so angry, you know and i have to kind of you know then i think about how do i how do i transform my anger into a source of fuel you know yeah. how do i how do i transform my anger into a source of change positive change affirming change
1: well i i can't think of any better words to to go out on i think once we begin to answer that puzzle we will end war <laughs> you know of of why good people find themselves involved in horrible things, because I, I definitely agree that we are not monsters um, and that we do have this within us. I just wanna say thanks to, to all, all three of you for being part of this. This has been a crossover, like I said, between two worlds, the world of, of activism and the world of literature, but we all care. So I think we, we've managed to find some common ground. So thank you. Thank and, you. Thanks
0: for joining us
2: today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.